0: Avro Canada's CF-105 Aero was an aviation marvel well ahead of its time. Developed in the mid-1950s, this extraordinary aircraft possessed the ability to reach speeds double that of sound, purposefully designed for traversing the Arctic skies as NORAD's first line of defense. Serving as Canada's gem within the aerospace and military sectors, The Arrow stood as a source of immense national pride, propelling Canada onto the global stage of innovation. Unfortunately, the Arrow's true potential remained unfulfilled as it met a tragic fate, known to many as Black Friday, where the Arrow was disassembled and sold for scrap, leaving those to reminisce of the aircraft's past glory days. Welcome to Takeoff, the podcast for all things aviation and aerospace. I'm your host, Adam Ben Laswurd, and in today's episode, we will cover the rise and fall of the Arrow. The year was 1945. Just after World War II had ended, and AV Rowe or Avro was a British aircraft manufacturer set to establish a branch in Canada to make use of the nation's skilled aviation labour force. This brought forth Avro Canada, established just outside of Toronto in Mississauga at the Victory Aircraft Plant, more commonly known today as Toronto Pearson Airport. Fast forward a few years to the early 1950s a pivotal era marked by the onset of the Cold War. Amidst escalating tensions, a formidable menace loomed on the horizon, the Soviet Union's long-range bombers, notably the Tupolev Tu-95, With a range of 15,000 kilometers, this aircraft posed a direct threat to both Canada and the US. Astonishingly, It even outmatched the notable American B-52 bomber in terms of range, surpassing it by a thousand kilometers. However, the most disconcerting aspect was its ability to deploy nuclear weapons. This emerging threat called for the creation of a jet interceptor capable of reaching a bomber before the bomber could reach its target. In 1953, the Royal Canadian Air Force commissioned Avro to design the Arrow with the following requirements. It must hold for a crew of two, have twin engines, hold a range of 300 nautical miles or 556 kilometers for a normal low-speed mission and 200 nautical miles or 370 kilometers for a high-speed interception mission. It must take off from a 6,000-foot or 1,800-meter runway, reach Mach 1.5 cruising speed at an altitude of 70,000 feet and have maneuverability such that for 2G turns there would be no loss of speed or altitude at Mach 1.5 in 50,000 feet. The specifications further required five minutes from starting the aircraft's engines to reaching 50,000 feet, and it must have a turnaround time on the ground of less than 10 minutes. It's important to note here that such requirements of turnaround times, speeds, and maneuverability were unheard of at the time, let alone found in a single aircraft. Hence many thought it couldn't be done. Nevertheless, Avro took up the challenge, but while designing the Aero, Avro engineers encountered some problems, one of which being wave drag. This is a particular type of drag that applies to supersonic flight. At subsonic speeds, speeds under Mach 1, the air molecules reflect off the leading edge of a wing of an aircraft back in the opposite direction that they were traveling, which causes a pressure wave. In this case, the air molecules being reflected off the wing are traveling at speeds higher than that of the wing. Since pressure waves are the same as sound waves, we can say that sound is traveling faster than the aircraft. This is true for aircraft traveling under Mach 1, the speed of sound, but at supersonic speeds, the aircraft is traveling faster than the speed of sound, meaning the body is traveling faster than the molecules of air are able to propagate waves in this pressure wave. This leads to a pressure wave buildup known as a shock wave and since air reflected off the jet is slower than the jet and the airflow around it, uh, these shock waves eventually lead to increased drag and cause a sound barrier which sounds like this. Now there are various types of shock waves, one of which is the bow shock, and of its defining features, it is detached from the surface of the aircraft and forms a curved wave. More importantly, a bow shock generally produces more drag compared to another type of shock wave known as an oblique shock because it converts more of the kinetic energy of the air molecules into heat and sound energy. Bow shock waves also tend to occur with more blunt objects, therefore producing a more streamlined and pointed cone of jets will help reduce drag as seen in the case of many jets, including the arrow. Now, these oblique shock waves are attached at one point to the aircraft and are dependent on the speed of the airflow and the angle of the cone. Oblique shock waves produce less drag as they redirect supersonic flow as they do not slow down the air, unlike Bow shocks. Now the angle of a shock wave is related to the angle of the cone. So if the angle of the cone is too great, then a bow shock wave will form. This is given by the theta beta Mach relationship. Now lastly, there are normal shocks which form perpendicular to the surface and are attached similar to oblique shocks, but are also similar to bow shocks as they change the airflow from supersonic to subsonic. This shock wave tends to form on the wings, and its effects can be calculated using the mock jump relation. For the Avro team, it was these normal shocks, the ones attached on the wing, that posed the largest challenge. In the past, German engineers have designed aircraft with swept wings in order to reduce drag by converting normal shock waves into oblique shocks. Now you might be wondering, how is this accomplished? And this is done by angling the wing. They also made the airfoil of the aircraft extremely thin to further reduce drag. In the case of the arrow, this would not work as it required space to store sufficient amounts of fuel in order to power its flight range, which could not be stored in the fuselage, the main body of the aircraft, because that was the location of the armaments. In addition to this, swept wings decrease lift, which decreases the efficiency of the aircraft resulting in higher fuel consumption. Part of the solution from German engineers was to increase the airfoil thickness, but have a more angled sweep on the wings. However, a swept wing would not be sufficient for the speeds of the arrow. Thus, arrow engineers turned to the delta wing. Unlike the swept wing, which was simply a regular wing with a root cord larger than that of the tip cord while being at an angle. The delta wing had a significantly larger root cord which extended such that one point of the root cord aligned with one point of the tip cord. This essentially formed a triangle, and this triangular shaped wing greatly increased the wing surface area which helped in lift and allowed for more space to store the fuel. The delta wing also enabled slower landings and swept wings under certain conditions. The disadvantages of the design were increased drag at lower speeds and altitudes, especially higher drag while maneuvering. For the interceptor role, these were minor concerns, as the aircraft would be spending most of its time flying in straight lines at high altitudes and speeds, mitigating these disadvantages. This design of the Delta Wing would later be seen in the famous commercial aircraft known as the Concorde. Which flew during the 70s, 80s, and 90s with similar speeds as that of the Arrow. The Arrow One, Canada's first supersonic fighter plane, is ready to fly after five years of work and planning by 5,000 people at Avro of Canada near Toronto. After only a couple years in production, The error was first seen by the public on October 4th, 1957. It was quite large, with a length of 24 meters, a height of 6.5 meters, and a wingspan of 15 meters. While empty, it weighed 49,000 pounds or roughly 22,000 kilograms, with a gross weight of nearly 57,000 pounds or nearly 26,000 kilograms. It was capable of producing 105 kilonewtons of thrust per engine with an afterburner. It had a range of 360 nautical miles or 670 kilometers, and was set to be armed with either two Air-to-A-Genie unguided nuclear rockets, or four Canadair velvet gloves. On the ground, all is tense and ready. In the cockpit, the pilot eases the throttles forward, and the arrow starts down the runway. The plane roars off the ground on her maiden flight. The final craft was able to hold a crew of two, with the primary pilot being in charge of piloting the jet, while the secondary pilot was in charge of navigation and firing weapons. Controversially, the secondary pilot had no windows except a small one only used for light to enter and had to completely rely on electronic instruments in order to visualize the surroundings in the air and to shoot at targets. This is known as fly-by-wire, which is common on many jets today, which heavily rely on equipment such as radar. However, the era was one of the first to use such technologies. The Arrow type of fighter will later be equipped with Canadian Iroquois jet engines, the most powerful in the world when they're available. Now, $200 million and 17,000 blueprints later, the plane taxis out for flight testing, with yeah, chief uh, test uh, pilot Jan uh, Zyrkowski at the controls. For, uh, the first yeah, test flight later took place on March 25, 1958, flown by World War II veteran Jan Zyrkowski, where its final recorded speed was Mach 1.98, just barely under Mach 2, with a cruise speed at Mach 0.91. During the test flight, the error was recorded to break several aviation records, These test flights were also the final steps before the Aero would be commissioned to take part in the North American Air Defense Command, or NORAD, to protect the air sovereignty of Canada and the continental United States. This was the fastest interceptor at the time, better than any Soviet or American fighter jet of the 1950s. It would only later be challenged by the Soviet MiG-21 which was later released in 1959 and had a Mach speed of 2, similar to that of the Arrow. For reference, the MiG-21 continues to be used by military forces to this day, including the Indian Air Force, and is being used in the war in Ukraine. For further perspective, Lockheed Martin's F-35 used by the US, UK, and Italian Air Forces had a max mock speed of only 1.6. At this time, Avro employed more than 25,000 people, making it one of the largest companies in Canada. The company was further looking to expand, with plans to create further jetliners and cameras capable of capturing high-speed objects. Pride and confidence in Avro was at an all-time high, with no plans on slowing down. But this all ended in February of 1959. My friends, this is a time for greatness in planning for Canada's future. Unity demands it, freedom requires it, vision will ensure it. My purpose and my aim will be to play the foundations of this nation for a great and a glorious future. After 22 years of Liberals holding Parliament Hill, Progressive Conservative Member John Diefenbaker was elected as Prime Minister of Canada. With the promise to take efforts to improve civil rights, increase social welfare programs, cut taxes, and slash military spending, the avro era program simply didn't stand a chance, leading to the demise of the beloved avro Arrow. In terms of Diefenbaker's character and ruling style, it is important to note that Diefenbaker was considered as a one-man cabinet, with many of the policy and executive decisions having less input from cabinet members compared to past administrations. Briefly straying away from Diefenbaker and the newly appointed progressive conservatives was another key figure to this story. Avro president Crawford Gordon Jr. was a unique character, polar opposite to that of Diefenbaker. He was charismatic and an industrialist from Winnipeg who was an avid alcoholic, smoker, and at times an overly enthusiastic individual, often noted to have a cigarette in his right hand, a drink in his left, while pounding on Diefenbaker's desk. And contrastingly, Diefenbaker was against smoking and drinking, never taking part in such behavior. He was always by the book. In fact, it was common knowledge that Diefenbaker and Crawford held a poor relationship, frequently arguing with each other, which further incentivized Diefenbaker to terminate the aero program. Although the relationship between the two figures certainly did not help in the decisions of the fate of the Avro Aero, it is not the main reason for the termination of the jet. Taking a step back on the timeline to October 4th, 1957, the Soviet satellite named Sputnik was launched into low Earth orbit. It was the first object to ever be successfully launched into space and marked the beginning of a new era, the space race. The threat in the following years slowly shifted in the late 50s and 60s from a threat of nuclear weapons falling from the skies to nuclear weapons falling from space. Launched as a new form of attack being intercontinental ballistic missiles, weapons, capable of being launched into space where they travel in low-Earth orbit in order to cover distances of thousands of kilometers. These missiles, known as ICBMs, had little pushback as the infrastructure to defend and identify ICBMs at the time was virtually non-existent. Paranoia, both in the public and government, grew as ICBMs posed a much larger concern than any bomber, and it didn't help that on August 21, 1957, the USSR launched the first successful test of an ICBM, the R-7, capable of traveling within 6,000 and 8,000 kilometers well within striking range of any US or Canadian target. The shift quickly became attaining ICBMs in order to act as a deterrent from its use from either side. In Prime Minister Diefenbaker's eyes, this rendered the Avro Arrow obsolete. Although evolving circumstances during the Cold War played a pivotal role in the fate of the Arrow, another major cause of its discontinuation was the program's sheer cost. Originally. The previous administration under St. Laurent gave the program a budget of only $26 million, which later became $400 million until it was estimated to reach $1.1 billion, approximately $10 billion today adjusted for inflation. Besides the program spending bills faster than they could be printed, the amount of spending also spiked concern between various branches in the military, specifically the Navy had called the government out on a disproportionate amount of funding going towards the Air Force compared to their branch or the Army. It also did not help that Canada was facing a recession. At that time, money was required to be poured into the people rather than expensive military programs. Additionally, by 1958, Canada's allies were making significant strides in the aerospace sector. Although the Aero held the title for the world's fastest fighter jet at the time, the United States, Great Britain, France, and Sweden has surpassed it with planes boasting superior flight ranges and maximum altitudes. The United States in particular benefited from its robust economic and military capabilities allowing them to consistently release more cost-effective aircraft like the McDonnell Corporation's F-4 Phantom at a much faster rate compared to Canadian manufacturers. Today, many put the blame on the Diefenbaker administration for canceling such a promising program, but many historians believe that the Liberals in this position would have folded in a very similar fashion. This is further supported by the fact that Diefenbaker held a minority government and required the support of many liberals in order to pass the bill to end the program. However, many criticized Diefenbaker for the manner in which the program was scrapped. His government forced all five prototypes to be disassembled and sold for scraps with jets once worth tens of millions of dollars being exchanged for only a few thousand dollars in return for its medal. Additionally, it was ordered to destroy and burn all blueprints and files relating to the arrow, and anyone caught with papers about the jet could face severe penalties. Officially, this was said to promote secrecy and prevent the possibility of Soviet espionage, but many historians, such as Jack Grenestine, have speculated on another reason, that Diefenbaker acted out of spite for Gordon and his beloved company. Despite all this information, was ending the program really the right call? 14,000 workers immediately lost their jobs on the last days of the Arrow, but an estimated 50,000 indirectly lost their jobs through subcontract work for the Arrow. This effect was only exacerbated by the recession, was already taking many jobs. This forced the majority of Canada's top engineers to move to the US to work for NASA, and as historian Bill Zuck stated, 30 elite engineers from Avro played a crucial role in putting a man on the moon. Moreover, many engineers would also move to Great Britain to work on the commercial airliner Concorde. Furthermore, After the Aero, the Canadian government decided to immediately buy 66 outdated second-hand voodoo jets from the US that were capable of flying less than half the speed of the Aero, and this came to a purchase of almost $200 million for a jet that served the same purpose as the Aero, with the only difference being it was inferior to the Aero in all aspects. The government then proceeded to take part in the Bowmark program. From the NORAD agreement which provided a surface-to-air guided missile system from the US. However, due to public dismay with the system and the increasing anti-nuclear sentiment, Canada disarmed the system which cost over 500 million dollars. These estimates are likely higher in reality as it was later disclosed that the cost of the Voodoo Jets and the Beaumark system was larger than the cost of the ENTIRE aero program thus far. Adding to this, both the US and British Air Force were interested in acquiring multiple arrows once in production. The Canadian government themselves estimated that they would be able to earn at least $200 million from the avro-aero exports to foreign militaries, which would have covered a reasonable chunk of its cost of initial development. Besides the financial aspect, the Aero could have been repurposed and flown in the South Pacific Conflict zones during the Cold War or even in the Gulf War as it would remain to be a menacing aircraft, admittedly though, it would be slightly outdated by that point. In the end, regardless of the stance taken on the controversial program's cancellation, the Avro Aero stands as an enduring emblem of national pride. Despite its brief existence, The arrow's importance to Canadians surpasses mere tangible accomplishments, embodying the very essence of what it means to be Canadian. Resilience in the face of adversity, and a relentless drive for innovation. The creative, industrious, and engineering-minded Canadians behind this groundbreaking program serve as a reminder of the extraordinary feats that can be achieved when we work towards a common vision, surely inspiring future generations to stay curious and work towards their goals, even when it may seem impossible.